Lots to talk about in Inside Politics, including the Agriculture Minister Lana Popham's rough ride in the legislature, with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, an extended conversation about the overdose crisis with Addictions and Mental Health Minister Judy Darcy. For Kamloops Computer Centre, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for listening. It's a beautiful morning here in Kamloops. Uh, pretty happy to be joined on the line by Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. Um, Shane? Let's pick up almost like where we left off last week. Uh, we were talking about Agriculture Minister Lana Popham. Uh, the subject of the time last week was that letter that she wrote to a fish farm. Uh, this week she had another rocky time in the B.C. legislature uh, with, shall we say, an evolving story about a conflict of interest investigation uh, into at first a specific doctor at an animal health centre, then the health centre as a whole, this at the request of the DFO, then we learn the DFO had never made such a request, then we learn Popham had personally called one of the scientists raising these conflict of interest accusations. Uh, Keith, what's going on here, and, and what kind of hole has Lana Popham dug herself? Well, what's going on, you've got a, a politician who was an activist for years on this file, on the fish farm file. Lana Popham uh, basically yoked with the fish farm protest group, uh, headed by Alexandra Morton and, and others, and now she's responsible for the industry in terms of, uh, in terms of being the agriculture minister. So, uh, it's no surprise that she's found herself in a situation where it appears that she's going after the industry, even though she insists she's not. Uh, she's in a confusing uh, set of circumstances where she's still not entirely clear why she uh, started this, this particular fight with the industry. At first, it seems that it was as a result of a complaint by a First Nations group. Then she says it was because she saw an interview with uh, a scientist and DFO on a national news program that caused her to uh, call an investigation and question that she says was questioning the science of the lab. And then it appears that, no, it's really uh, whether or not a particular scientist who's pro-fish farm is in a conflict of interest. And she still isn't entirely clear exactly what is going on from her perspective. But at the, at the end of the day, you've got an activist minister uh, handling a file that's of, uh, very complicated and very sensitive, and that's why I think she's um, sort of spinning around here. It, it did not do herself a lot of favor by having the Premier, John Horgan, answer every question hurled her way by the yeah. NDP for an entire half hour in question period. It was a little embarrassing for her. But full marks to her to come out, and she met uh, with us extensively, had a long scrum with the media, uh, answered all her questions, but still is not providing a lot of light on exactly what is motivating her and what really compelled her to launch these investigations. And Vaughn, uh, the Premier didn't just come try and come to a rescue in the legislature. Uh, he also went in front of reporters this week and tried to make this thing a non-story, uh, essentially saying it all began with this W-5 investigation, and uh, then it just sort of unrolled from there. Uh, what did you think of what he had to say? Well, I think the really telling thing is he took charge. Yeah. He appointed Don Wright, who is the head of the public service in British Columbia, a very well-respected figure. He's the guy that Horgan brought in to make over the public service. Right, right off the top, indicated confidence in the current public service in B.C. He did not replace all of the deputies. He's, he's kept morale up in the public service by showing that he understands their professionalism. So he steps in, and you've got a, a battle between scientists and 
between scientists and people who aren't scientists. They're activists, right? And he's now taken charge of this, the Animal Health Lab investigation, the accusation of conflict of interest against the senior fish pathologist in that lab, Dr. Marty, uh, Gary Marty, and Wright is going to oversee it. And I think I would say the initial feedback I've heard certainly is that everyone trusts Wright. This will be professional. This will be fair. Everybody will be given due process. It's an interesting contrast, actually, Shane. You might think of this to the, what happened in the health firings, where you know they had a half-assed investigation and people were hung out yeah. to dry and fired without really being given a fair shake. So I think it, uh, I think it was a very good move by the Premier. Um, he stepped in. I think he recognized that he had a minister who was an activist and a zealot and that he needed to take charge, and he did. Uh, so, Keith, this right investigation is there. Is there things to find there, or is this uh, is this kind of a waste of money, or is there something of substance that could come out of this? What do you think? Well, as Juan says, you know, you've got you've got dueling scientists uh, here on the science of of aquaculture. Uh, I'm not sure Wright can really uh, weed through that thing and 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 find a conclusive uh, finding on that, but. On the conflict of interest, whether or not a scientist working in a lab uh, is in a conflict if he's also doing activities outside a lab, that is something that falls into a deputy minister's um, purview. I mean, Wright should be able to distinguish whether or not that's real or perceived and take action accordingly. Uh, but again, I'm not sure at the end of the day he's going to be able to resolve this this decades-old fight between scientists over over the uh, the effects of aquaculture, like open pen fish farms and the effects on wild salmon. It's it's clear the NDP's position for years has been to uh, that that open pen fish farms present a hazard to wild salmon. So I expect at the end of the day that policy is going to change. There's going to be some movement on the government on that part. Whether Wright initiates that or not, I don't think so. I think he's more confined to the conflict uh, situation. Interesting interview, too, today, Shane, on the front page of The Sun with uh, our friend Rob Shaw interviewed the scientist who's yeah. being accused here of a conflict of interest, Dr. Gary Marty, and um, he comes across as a pretty formidable guy. Uh, he points out he has two, he says, earned doctorates, two earned PhDs. These are not honorary degrees, and that's a shot at one of his critics who doesn't have any PhDs. So he says he's confident. He says, as a scientist, you expect to have your research challenged and reviewed. He can live with that. He thinks his work will stand up to scrutiny. Um, the, the odd thing here, Shane, and Keith and I both talked about this, is if the opponents of fish farms and of Dr. Marty's work figured they were going to get the farms out and maybe get Dr. Marty's head on a platter. The way they've gone about it here has probably made that less likely. I think the government will be careful now to review the fish farms and not just pull their licenses for arbitrary reasons. Uh, I think some of them may survive. And I think what we see from the, the accusations against Dr. Martin, and people were demanding that he be fired, is that I think he's going to get a fair hearing, and I will be surprised if at the end of it he's fired. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, just because it was raised this week, and I'm kind of curious, and I don't personally know, uh, Keith, the, this whole thing about misleading the legislature, it didn't end up going down that road, or at least not yet, but uh, what happens if a minister of the Crown is found to have misled the legislature? What's the fallout from that? Well, if, uh, if the Speaker rules that, uh, well, first, if the opposition 
tries to make a case, a prima facie case, a case on the surface looks like there's something there. If the speaker's rule, rules that indeed a prima facie case exists, that a, that a, um, that a minister has misled the House, then it's put to the House for a debate. Uh, the, uh, the, the minister in question has the right of reply and defense. It rarely happens. Uh, one, I remember a very memorable moment back in the 80s, actually, when uh, the Coquihalla Highway scandal erupted and the former highways minister, Alex Fraser, was brought in front of the House, and the Speaker ruled that a prima facie case had, did exist, that he had misled the House a few years before on the spending estimates for the Coquihalla Highway, hmm. which is in your neighborhood. And uh, he had to come in front of the, the bar of the House, and he, he actually it was dramatic because he actually spoke with the... With the uh, aid of a voice uh, enabler because he had, I think, throat cancer and he couldn't speak, so he had to speak through this artificial device, which was quite you know, dramatic and striking. So that's the last time I can remember that, that this ever being established. Well, it can be a very serious uh, situation, but it rarely happens. The opposition usually cannot persuade the speaker that a prima facie case does exist that the that, uh, minister misled the house but but Potham came perilously close to that but i think uh, she was able to establish an out that that didn't happen yeah the speaker had a showdown this week as well yeah, shane with the opposition that. you know the liberals are not very happy with daryl plekas for having crossed the floor in effect yeah. to the ndp uh, so they've been they've been calling lana popham the minister of intimidation because of the way she treated the fish farms and dr marty and uh, plekas ruled that out of order in the House, he got away with it one day, they backed down, but the second day they repeated the accusation, Minister of Intimidation, and when Plekis ruled it out of order, the government, the opposition House leader, Mike DeYoung, got up and said, I've made a study of parliamentary language, this does not meet the guidelines of unparliamentary language from the past, and then he said something amazing. He said, this will not be withdrawn said that right to the speaker an act of defiance the speaker backed down yeah so that was your mla a lot of bad blood between the liberals <laughs> and uh, their former member now speaker and it was, a, it was a quite a dramatic showdown and keith and i were sitting there i hadn't seen that happen before either yeah and it was interesting not only did DeYoung young say it wouldn't be withdrawn he actually repeated uh, the Minister of Intimidation line and, yeah. and threw it back on the floor. It was uh, all premeditated. It was yeah. uh, Peter Millibar, the Kamloops uh, rookie MLA, had started it the day before, as Vaughn says, and he he withdrew the first time. Uh, but they went away, Mike DeYoung went away and did some research and discovered, no, this is not an unparliamentary term. And Millibar did the same thing, and uh, he was told to withdraw. And it was amazing. Vaughn and I were sitting up in the gallery right above the, the Liberal caucus looking down at them, and they have never seen this before, where the entire caucus started screaming at the speaker, no, we're not. <laughs> and it wasn't just Mike DeYoung. It was Michelle Stilwell, who's you know one of the gentlest people you can find around here, uh, was furious at Plekis saying, no, we're not, and pointed to Millibar, and, and she yelled at him, keep going, keep going. Uh, it was an outright defiance of the speaker, and the, and the clerk of the house, uh, Craig James, stood up, and he, we saw him walk over to Plekis and basically told him, "We, you know, you got to lower the temperature here. You got to cool these things down. Don't have a confrontation." Because the if Plekis stuck to his guns, Millibar would have to be ejected from the house, and yeah. that would have set off 
is what kind of chaos. Yeah, I guess uh, last word to you on this, Fawn, but obviously, as you referenced there, a bit of a, a moral victory uh, from the Liberals against their, their, their former MLA. Yeah, Plekis has not found his footing as Speaker. He's going to, at some point, I think, have to show some independence from the government in what he's doing. And, and this thing between him and his former colleagues has got to be patched up. My, it, This will probably fester through the rest of the session. We get a new leader in the new year in February when the House sits again in February. I think there'll be an opportunity to turn the page then, but uh, it was it was close to a, a historic showdown uh, this week because, as I say, if the Speaker had tucked, stuck to his guns, he may have thrown Millibar and DeYoung out. But you need moral authority to do that, and I don't think the Speaker was on solid grounds in ruling that as unparliamentary language. All right, guys, let's take a break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. We'll pick up this conversation on the other side here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, there may be no more... Uh, kind of an explosive uh, topic in this province, especially in the Lower Mainland, uh, where it concerns housing and affordability. And uh, this week, uh, Selena Robinson, the housing minister, announced the closing of a loophole. Uh, some money is for the residential tenancy branch in order to kind of, uh, in her words, uh, tackle affordability and protect renters from explosive rate hikes. Uh, so I guess, Vaughn, the big question here is, will this thing work? Will it be effective? Well, you know, the previous government did some things to tackle housing affordability, hit or miss. Uh, this government uh, won the election, uh, I think, or certainly won, took nine seats away from the government on the lower mainland because of its promise to do something about housing affordability. But we are already seeing, I think, that it is one thing to say you're going to do something about it, and another thing to come up with an agenda that'll work. Uh, the NDP has gone at it piecemeal like the Liberals are saying we're going to get a full-blown plan to deal with it next year. But look, I think, Shane, with the best of intentions, it's not you're not going to be able to do more than slow the rate of growth in housing prices. I don't think uh, that single-family dwellings are ever going to be affordable yeah. again in and around Mander- Metro Vancouver. Yeah. You know, there's, there's two parts of the equation here. There's home ownership, which the government really hasn't done anything yet in terms of affecting housing prices. And then there's the rental situation, which I think is even more of a crisis uh, than uh, the home ownership part, because there, there is basically zero vacancy yep. for rents in Metro Vancouver. You know, I've got family members who've just, it's in a, almost a crisis trying to find accommodation in Metro Vancouver. So the move... Selena Robinson announced yesterday, I think is a good one. It's not, it's not the answer for everything, but ending this sort of loophole for landlords to be able to have short-term fixed leases with vacancy clauses or move-out clauses that allow them to jack up the rent uh, way more than the 2% plus inflation that you're limited to. I mean, I know instances where university students have to sign these short-term leases. If they want to remain, their rent goes up 30%. It's yeah. just uh, it's, it's a ridiculous situation. So Robinson moved yesterday in that loophole. It won't stop really unscrupulous landlords from sort of still trying to get around the rules, but that coupled with the increased resources for the Residential Tenancy Act to sort of crack down and investigate these people, 
I think are, are overdue moves. It's not, it's, you know, it's not going to solve everything, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, how key is this housing strategy that the NDP have kind of danced around, and they say they're going to unroll this thing in February because, as I said, the lower mainland right now is a kettle on boil when it comes to housing affordability, and this thing could, could make them or break them, I think. It's, uh, I agree. Look, the, the expectations are very, very high that they're going to be able to do this, but the, the trouble with this area is of public policy is unintended consequences so if you make you you bring in a loophole that protects renters and preserves rent controls on rental housing uh, which in the short term certainly prevents the kind of abuses we've seen but if you own a bunch of these buildings um and you now have one last lever you can pull to raise your returns on the building, uh, maybe you don't spend as much money on upkeep of the building. Maybe you let the building run down. Uh, maybe if you've got money to build new buildings, instead of building rental where there's controls on what you can collect, uh, you build condominiums and sell them to people. I mean, you're you're dealing with a... Uh, a limited supply of land, very tough rules at local councils for getting uh, developments through and approved, and lots of rules that drive up the price. Uh, I don't know as though, as I say, even with the best of intentions, the government is going to be able to make much progress on this. And with their intentions, they may well generate a whole other range of problems that we can only just imagine. Yeah, would you agree with that, Keith? Oh, well, I agree. I think it's a very complex file, and, and Vaughn's right, the unintended consequences. I mean, that's what held the Liberals back for so long. They didn't want to do anything that hurt the equity people have built up in the homes or to, to uh, provide disincentives for, for people to build rental units or to build more units for, for sale. Uh, it's, and the NDP, you know, took advantage of that in the election. Uh, they raised it as a big issue, but they gave the impression that they had some sort of magic solution here, and they don't. It's clear they don't because one does not exist. So Carol James again hinted, or said this week there's going to be a number of measures coming out in the spring. There will be a speculation tax. We don't know what form that's going to take. And again, we don't know whether there's going to be un, any unintended consequences with that. We don't know what's going to happen to the foreign buyers tax, whether it's going to be increased or decreased or spread to more areas than Metro Vancouver. Uh, they've committed to more supply, but so did the B.C. Liberals. And as Vaughn just mentioned, you know, the government can say they want to build all the housing they want. You've got to get municipalities to buy in. And that's one of the problems the, the Liberals had was to get through this very bureaucratic logjam that existed in places, notably in Vancouver, where it took a lo- takes a long time to get from A to B uh, when you want to build a housing project. So uh, this is a very difficult file. Selena Robinson, good on her yesterday with that move, but uh, a lot more has to happen, and I don't think that she's got the goods to be able to deliver that. Nothing against her. I just don't think a magic solution exists out there. Yeah, and from my perspective in Kamloops, you should see the amount of people from Metro Vancouver who are pouring out of that region and spiking real estate markets here in Kamloops, Kelowna, and other places. It's unbelievable. We're, uh, we're, we're up against the clock here, guys, but I do want to squeeze this one last thing in because next week's going to be a big one. BCUC is releasing its final report on Site C, uh, and that will come before a very crucial uh, cabinet decision from the NDP government. Keith, uh, Reading the tea leaves here, what do you what do you think? Oh man, I go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, you know I've been to Site C. I thought, man, you can't turn this thing uh, down now. It's it's past the point of no return. 
Now, however, I'm starting to think uh, that the NDP uh, is going to find an exit strategy here and uh, and kill the thing. Now, ask me tomorrow, I might change my mind again. Like I said, <laughs> back and forth on this, the more reports you read, the more people you talk to, uh, there's persuasive arguments on all levels. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get an announcement next week. I think we're going to see the report go to the government. It won't be made public for a while. I don't think the NDP will make a decision, at least until after their party convention here in Victoria, the first weekend in November. November, but it's a real difficult call for the, for the NDP. But uh, I'm right now leaning towards cancellation. All right. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. Uh, I'm leaning toward them still letting it go ahead, but the interesting thing will be that convention in Victoria, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, whether or not the party puts any pressure on its own government uh, to cancel a thing. The, uh, when the NDP is having a, a party convention when they're in power, the party itself sometimes makes mischief by trying to put pressure on the government to do something. So that's going to be an interesting convention here in Victoria next weekend. All right, gentlemen, my uh, my thanks uh, always for your insight. Uh, and your words. I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye, Shane. There we go. There's Keith Baldry from Global BC and Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. A quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, the overdose crisis with Judy Darcy, the Minister of Addictions. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Centre on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, real pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy. Judy, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Uh, I am well as well. Um, we have to tackle a pretty serious topic and one that has dominated news headlines uh, basically for the last almost two years now. As I'm sure you know, 1,013 people have died from an illicit drug overdose this year. Uh, we're on track for somewhere maybe in the neighborhood of uh, 1,600 deaths, as, as I'm sure you know. Uh, some of the worst death tolls came in the winter months last year. We don't know what the remaining four months of this year have in store for us. But uh, what's your concern level here? Well, we are very, very concerned, and we are escalating our response. Four people a day are dying in British Columbia, and we can't allow this to become the new normal. Every single one of these people have families who love them. They're not just statistics. They have families who are devastated by this loss, uh, and, it's, and people are dying because they're, they're being poisoned. There are contaminated drugs out there on the street that are killing people, and so our government has decided we need to escalate our response, and that's exactly what we're doing. Give me some details. What does an escalated response mean exactly? Well, just in the budget that we approved in September, we are spending $322 million over the next three years, largely on the overdose response. That means getting more naloxone kits out there, having more people trained to, to administer them. It means setting up more harm reduction sites. We've had seven that have been set up just in the last number of weeks alone. It means ensuring that people have access to Suboxone and Methadone, which are first-line treatments, but also expanding the use of other medication, treat prescription medications for people for whom Suboxone and Methadone don't work. Uh, but we're also working in areas like uh, being proactive and setting up um, youth hubs, child, uh, youth mental health and addiction hubs across the province that are really a one-stop shop for young people, for youth who are at risk, so that if they come in with any kind of issue, whether it's uh, mental health, whether it's uh, substance use, whether it's employment, uh, whether they just are in a crisis and they need help, they will be immediately connected with a wide array of services to really 
you know, create a pathway to hope for them and to make sure that they get the support at an early age before these problems become severe. When can communities sort of expect sort of an enhanced substitution therapy package? And I assume when you mean the hardcore addicts, the ones that that's not reaching, when you say prescription, I assume you mean prescription heroin. Well, there are two medications. Uh, there's prescription hydromorphone and prescription diacetylmorphine, uh, and both of them are used uh, as treatments for people who have tried Suboxone and, and uh, Methadone, and it just hasn't worked for them. It's a small percentage of the population of people living with addictions, uh, and right now it's provided strictly in the Crosstown Clinic in the downtown east side in Vancouver. But I approved a new guideline um, one that's been developed by experts from across the province, every health authority, the Ministry of Health, all the the experts in addiction medicine worked for many, many months to develop a guideline for the use of these um, more advanced prescription medications. And so I've asked health authorities to come back with very specific plans about how we can roll this out across the province in the months to come. When, When are they supposed to get back to you, Judy? They'll be getting back to me by the end of the month. Because this is, this is an urgent necessity. This is about saving lives. And it's really, a, we have to be able to save people's lives if we're going to be able to get them into treatment. You know, some people say, why are you, uh, why are you working so hard in, on harm reduction? Well, we need to save somebody's life in order to get them into treatment and then hopefully into recovery programs. But the first step is saving lives when four people a day are dying. Um, it's an unprecedented public health emergency in the province of British Columbia, and we need to save people's lives in order to get them into treatment and recovery. Uh, the point was made here in Kamloops recently by somebody on the front lines of the crisis in this community that addicts seem to be availing themselves of the overdose prevention and supervised injection sites, but it's recreational users or high-functioning addicts concealing, uh, concealing their problem and are using alone that, that as a group that needs serious attention. Do you agree with that? The majority of people who are dying are people who are using alone. And the people who are using alone, they could be recreational users or they could be homeless people. They could be people living with addictions for many years. It's really uh, addiction doesn't discriminate and people who are using alone doesn't discriminate. It's people from a wide variety of of backgrounds. uh, And whether they're street homeless or whether they have middle-class professional middle-class professional salaries, uh, we absolutely do need to reach those people who are using a loan. And so we're working on a very targeted uh, public education campaign really designed to reach those people who are most at risk, and that's people who are using a loan. And they're using a loan because of stigma. They're using a loan because of stigma, so we need to combat that stigma in the population at large. And we need to get to a place, Shane, where People in British Columbia, people across the country, um, understand that addiction is a health issue. And so that we start treating people living with addiction with the same support and sympathy and quality of care as we do with people who are living with physical illnesses. And we have a long way to go to get to that place. I want to tackle the stigma thing in a second, but uh, first, I, I'm, I grow increasingly frustrated with uh, recreational users, and I have some experience with at least one in my own family uh, who is a young person who has that sense of invincibility. This is not going to happen to me. This happens to other people uh, who is out there using in the bar and nightclub scene. How do we reach those people, Judy? How do you hammer the message home that this is Russian roulette to that subset? I think it's by saying exactly that, Shane, 
that any drug that you're that you're buying off the street is laced with poison. And that is the case. It's the wide spectrum of drugs that people may have been purchasing recreationally uh, for many years and purchasing from the same uh, from the same dealer, someone they think they trust. But the reality is that a wide variety of street drugs are found to have fentanyl in them, and carfentanyl in them, and that's a killer. So you can't trust someone, even though you may have bought drugs from that person for many years, you are putting your life at risk. So certainly we would encourage people not to be using those drugs, but we would absolutely say if you're going to, you should not be using drugs alone or you're, you're risking your life. Yeah. Let's talk about the stigma because one of the things that, that, that I hear uh, more often than I would like to hear is the stereotypical mindset of some that addicts are these back alley, downtown east side, filthy people, and, you know, screw them, they can just die. And I've heard that. Uh, and matter of fact, I don't know if you're aware or not, but there was uh, a, a write-in letter to one of the local newspapers here that basically um, compared drug users to rats and that rats need to be eliminated. And how do you tackle the stigma? Because I'm, I'm not seeing this as a downtown east side problem. Uh, we lost a, a pillar of this community recently, a, a guy who has done so much for Kamloops. Uh, we've seen people drop at weddings. We, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's reaching everybody, Judy. So how do we tackle the mindset among some that these people should be ignored and left to die? I did read that. I did read that letter, Shane, and it's very, very troubling. And I think the way that we tackle it is by talking about the wide variety of people who are affected. Mental illness does not discriminate. Addiction does not discriminate. And it's interesting you mentioned people who are on the downtown east side, but there are also homeless communities right across British Columbia, especially in in small and large urban centers. It's important for us to understand how people got to that place. Um, the people who are now homeless and who are living with severe addictions. Because I've met people in homeless camps uh, and in the downtown east side. And I, when I say homeless camps, I mean not just in the lower mainland, who describe how they got there. And some of them began as injured workers. I can't tell you how many people I've met with, who I've, I've, I've spoken with, who worked in the forestry industry or who worked in construction, and they experienced a severe workplace accident that left them with debilitating pain. And so some of them began with prescription uh, with prescription painkillers and became addicted to those prescription painkillers, or the painkillers weren't you know strong enough to cope with the pain, and they ended up turning to, or, and in some cases they they were deemed to be addicted to those pain meds, and so they were cut off, and they ended up turning to street drugs, and then their lives spiraled out of control, and they ended up losing their jobs, becoming homeless, and becoming severely addicted to street drugs. You have that, and then you also have people, as you mentioned, in middle-class professional jobs in various places across the province, and you have people on the wide spectrum uh, from one end, from one end of that spectrum to the other, so I think we need to be saying these are our mothers, our brothers, our loved ones. Uh, addiction is a serious health issue. It's a chronic illness, and we need to treat it that way. And we need to recognize that sometimes people relapse, just like people who try and quit smoking or people who are living with diabetes or any of a number of other 
uh, serious health issues, and we need to support them every step along the way. This could be any of us, and in fact, it is. Judy, why don't we take a quick pause, uh, take a quick commercial break, we'll pick up this conversation on the other side. We're talking to Addictions Minister Judy Darcy about the overdose crisis right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking about the overdose crisis with mental health and addictions minister, Judy Darcy. Judy, you recently went to Ottawa. Tell me a little bit about the conversation around the overdose crisis there. We've asked the federal government to take action on removing some of the barriers at the federal level to make it easier to offer life-saving measures like methadone prescribing, um, uh, regulation of prescription medications, drug checking, safe consumption sites, and also, very importantly, to work with us on a national anti-stigma campaign so we get to the place where people who are living with addictions are treated with the same dignity and respect and quality of care as people who are living with physical illnesses. This is a lot more, obviously, than addictions. This is, in a, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, this is, this is going to require a multi-pronged approach, hence the mental health part of your ministry. Uh, tell me about some of the other things and the other prongs that your government is taking, other than the substitution therapies and some of the direct uh, uh, initiatives to reach addicts. How else are you attacking and, and, and getting to this problem? Well, we really are taking an all-of-government approach to this, Shane, and that means working together with my colleagues in the Ministry of Health, in the Ministry of Education, so that we really start early with our kids, with early identification of mental health issues um, and prevention, so that we support them before mental health issues become more severe and then turn to substance use issues. So we're working with them on a series of initiatives for our schools. We're working with um, the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation and with the First Nations Health Authority and with other in, with Indigenous organizations because this crisis is affecting Indigenous communities in a very big way. Um, indigenous people are dying at a rate three times the population at large. So that's all about uh, intergenerational trauma that was a result of colonization and residential schools and racism. So again, there, it's about supports for communities now, culturally appropriate supports in communities, but it's also starting very early with our ki- with, with kids, with, with Indigenous children and youth. Uh, we're working very closely with the Ministry of Children and Families because we absolutely need to put in place a solid strategy for child and youth mental health. Um, the representative for children and youth in British Columbia has issued one report after another just talking about kids who fell through the cracks, um, youth who are most at risk who've fallen through the cracks. So part of our mandate is to put in place that seamless coordinated system for child and youth mental health, which is uh, that's really where we're going to start in building a better system overall for mental health in British Columbia, uh, mental health and addictions in British Columbia, is starting with our kids, starting with our youth. Heaven forbid this thing keeps grinding on, Judy, but it's been almost two years now. And I mean, every month we have this hope that somehow we're going to turn the corner. And, and every month when the numbers come out, uh, that hope gets dashed. And some people even say, maybe we're living in the new normal. So if, if these new initiatives don't work and we still see month after month uh, the overdose crisis rage on, where do you fall on, on, on things like decriminalizing hard drugs or, or going to that extreme? 
Well, I just came back from a, fed- a meeting of the federal minister, uh, federal uh, provincial territorial ministers of health, um, and the decriminalization. Criminalization, decriminalization is a federal responsibility. I don't think there's any appetite to change that in the short term. Um, certainly, it, there's a lot of discussion about a Portuguese model where they haven't, it's not that they've legalized drugs. They haven't done that at all. What they've done is really make a big distinction between people who are living with addictions who have a small amount of drugs in their possession uh, for personal use and uh, and big drug dealers, uh, organized crime and gangs and and people who are found with small amounts of an illegal drug uh, that, that they're using for their own use because they are living with an addiction. That it's treated as an administrative violation as opposed to a criminal one, and they are immediately supported with treatment. Um, they also are taking in Portugal an all-of-government approach as we are and saying that housing, and I didn't mention housing when I was talking about collaboration within our government, but housing is a critical piece of this, absolutely critical. When we have people who are living in substandard housing or are homeless and living on the streets, if we save their life from an overdose with an aloxone kit and they go back to living on the street, there's no pathway to hope there for them. So part of our strategy as well is ensuring that they're, that that we're um, far more proactive in housing the homeless housing the homeless and that's part and parcel of our overall agenda for government it's also part and parcel of our strategy around mental health and addictions and those are some of the things that we've learned from places like Portugal where they not only offer treatment on demand you you have a tr- you have an appointment available for you literally the next day and when you're in a position to do so um, which could be from day one while you're doing treatment. They also have employers that are willing to provide employment for people who are living with addictions and who accommodate them and support them in the workplace. They've, they've also done a lot in the area of supportive housing. So it really is about looking at someone living with addiction as a whole person, first of all, as a health issue, and looking at them as a whole person and ensuring that we give them the kinds of supports and services that they need that they really can get on a pathway to treatment and then recovery. So if legalizing hard drugs and a lot of other sort of areas of responsibility lie with the federal government, uh, what can you do? How can you push them? How can you sort of work within those constraints? We are doing everything we can uh, to push the envelope within the present legal framework to ensure that people have access to safe prescription medication. We need to be able to save people's lives so that we can then get them into treatment and recovery and on a pathway to hope. But first, we have to save their lives and their traditional medications like Suboxone and Methadone don't work for everybody. And so we need to have access to other prescription medications in order to save their lives and to avoid them being poisoned by toxic drugs at a rate of four people a day. You sort of stated the provincial government's position uh, when it comes to decriminalizing hard drugs if if we ever decide to try and go down that road, but what do you think about that personally? We think it's important that we have a courageous conversation about this issue in this country. We know that there are examples like Portugal where they certainly did not legalize uh, hard drugs by any means. They they dealt with the issue of access, you know, limited uh, amount of possession of some of these drugs. But what they did most importantly was ensure that they treated people who were living with addictions 
with dignity and respect and care, and they offered them access to treatment on demand, as well as supportive housing, supportive employment, so that they could start to put their lives together and have a pathway to hope. I think we need to have that conversation here. We need to distinguish between organized crime and organized gangs that are trafficking in these death drugs and individuals who are living with addictions who need support and who need treatment and who need care. You mentioned the Portugal model when it comes to uh, tackling the overdose crisis and some of the things going on there. Uh, what are the top one or two ideas that, that they're doing in Portugal that perhaps that we could uh, expropriate and use here? I mean, what's working there? In the Portuguese model, they offer treatment on demand. So in Canada, in British Columbia, if we save someone's life with methadone, we're not in a position now to say, here's, tr- here's treatment you can go to for sure tomorrow. And we need to get to the point where we can do that, but we absolutely have to expand harm reduction because without harm reduction, we don't save people's lives and you can't get people into treatment and recovery unless they're alive. I understand at UBCM you told some civic councillors here in Kamloops and met with you that uh, you'd be coming to this community at some point and, and taking a look at the homeless and addiction problem firsthand. Uh, any timeline on, on coming here at all yet or no? I will definitely be doing that very soon. Uh, we, we aren't leaving the legislature very much these days. <laughs> you may be aware that there's a pretty close uh, uh, vote margin uh, in the legislature, but uh, as soon as I have the first opportunity and a break from the legislature, I will be visiting Kamloops. Kamloops is one of the places in British Columbia where a high, you know, that has one of the highest proportions of people who are dying from overdose. And uh, so I want to uh, visit people on the front line, talk to people who are living through that overdose crisis, and really hear from uh, community leaders in Kamloops about what it is we can do to support them. Yeah. How important is that, Judy, in your mind to get out there and really start hearing directly from people on the ground? Well, that's what I've been doing since day one on the job, was uh, going and visiting uh, communities across the province. And Kamloops is definitely, um, Kamloops is definitely next up. I, uh, we need to know what's working and what isn't and what we need to change. And that's exactly what I've been asking everybody from day one. And it's people who are involved in delivering those services on the front line. But it's also people with lived experience because one of the really critical parts of this response is peer support workers. So people who have lived with addictions themselves um, can offer some of the best support and counseling and advice uh, to people who are currently living with addictions and who are at risk of overdose. All right. Uh, You've been very generous with your time. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you so much, Shane. That was Mental Health and Addictions Minister Judy Darcy as we took a deep dive into the overdose crisis. My thanks to my guests for the show today, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Judy Darcy. We'll see you right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.